0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight Segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping medical treatments today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Verrielli, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Gustavo Carrizo. Our guests today are doctors Rachel Soloff and Andrew McKnight, two leaders at the global specialty pharmaceutical company, Kiawa Kieran. Kiowa Kirin has a particular focus on the discovery and development of novel first-in-class medicines that have a profound impact on patients in multiple therapeutic areas, including nephrology, oncology, immunology, allergy, and neurology. Dr. Soloff is an executive director of research at the La Jolla, California site. She has expertise in immunology and the discovery of novel monoclonal antibodies and small molecule therapeutic compounds for autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. She oversees the Kiowa Curin U.S. research activities, which are focused on target discovery and validation, and leads candidate discovery for multiple innovative pipeline projects. Her work at Kiowa has led to the discovery of two monoclonal antibodies that are currently under clinical investigation and four patent applications. Dr. McKnight currently holds the position of president and CSO at Kiowa Kirin Pharmaceutical Research. He's responsible for early-stage drug discovery within Kiowa Curin's immunology and allergy division. Dr. McKnight trained as an immunologist, and he earned a doctor of philosophy degree from the University of Oxford, followed by postdoctorate work in research labs at Harvard and Oxford. He has had a prolific career in the biopharma sector, including most recently, two senior positions with Pfizer's global R&D division and Anaptis Bio, a clinical stage biotech company. Andrew and Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Joe. Uh, Nice to meet you guys. Gustavo, pleasure to be here. Hi,
2: thanks, Joe and Gustavo. Nice to be here.
0: So, we want to start off by learning a little bit about both of you. And, and given that you were both trained as immunologists, it seems fitting that you've assumed your current roles at Kiwa Kirin, which is a pharmaceutical company heavily focused on cutting edge antibody engineering technology. And your progression from grad school to Kiwa Kirin uh, between the two of you uh, is quite different. Uh, and I'm hoping that you could each briefly talk about your careers and how they've evolved since grad school and how that's led to where you are and, and what you're doing today with Kiwok here.
1: Yeah. Hey, Rachel, do you mind if I start?
2: No, go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> thanks a lot. My,
1: my my background's a little more colorful, perhaps. <laughs> um, I uh, grad school, uh, did my PhD at Oxford uh, University over in, uh, in the UK, in England. A few of your uh, listeners may have heard of it um so studied studied immunology um in, in the uh, in the department where uh, penicillin was actually first developed back in the 1940s um by a, a couple of individuals who won nobel prizes for that work uh howard florey being one of them that your listeners would know i then went to boston worked in boston with a guy called Abula Bass, who wrote the textbook on uh, on immunology and everyone on this podcast should probably have a copy. So worked with Abul Bass at at Harvard for a few years and then uh, moved back to to Oxford, I'm sorry, moved back to Oxford to work with a guy called Simon Gordon uh, who was working on macrophages uh, and did so up until his retirement. And then uh, after, I think it was six years working with Simon, um, I uh, moved into industry, joined a company called Celltech. Uh, which is now UCB. It was a British company at the time. It's now owned by a Belgian. Uh, well, it's now a Belgian company. Uh, so I joined. I joined Celtec, Worked there. That's where I really learned a lot of my antibody engineering. Um, so there were some great antibody engineers at that company. I always describe Celtec as being the, uh, the the Genentech equivalent in the UK um, back in those back in the nineteen eighties. In the early '90s, and then I uh, then I joined uh, Pfizer. So I moved into what I call big pharma in the UK, and worked with Pfizer in the UK. And they also transitioned me back over to to Boston. Uh, that's how I landed back in the US. Um, worked with Pfizer, huge company at the time, 125,000 people. They had just acquired Wyeth uh, when I joined them, so there was a lot of reorganization going on. Um, Then after a period of time with Pfizer, I made the move to the West Coast, joined a company called Anaptis Bio, um, really small biotech, pre-IPO, technology company, platform company, antibody engineering, less than 50 employees. So I went from one size to another. I didn't downsize. Mm -hmm. I just shifted. (laughs) I just shifted my focus in my career. And after a very successful period with an aptist bio, I, I, I moved uh, to Kioba Kirin in 2015, where I first met Rachel and we've been working together uh, ever since. So, um, and that's where I am now. I'm the chief research officer here in La Jolla in California. Uh, department size, roughly 45 individuals, most of them in the research division. And that's where, that's where Rachel was focused. So I'll pass over to her.
2: Thanks, Andrew. So, yeah, my uh, as Andrew said, my training and background maybe is not quite as colorful, um, but it shows you that there's multiple different paths to to get to positions in industry and successful careers in in, in biotech pharma. So, I uh, did my PhD at uh, Louisiana State University Medical Center. Or it was what what it was called at the time in Shreveport, Louisiana um, that's now Louisiana state health science center. Um, it was a fairly new department that was founded, I think three years before I joined the program, uh, funded by oil money from Louisiana microbiology immunology department. I, um, joined the lab of Robert Sherbinak and worked on pre thymic T cell development. So working on, um, uh, culture conditions to expand bone marrow derived um, precursor T cells and determine the signals that would um, induce T cell differentiation or, or um, um, lineage commitment. Uh, so I, I worked on the TCR gene regulation at that time. And then I moved to San Diego and joined Steve Hedrick's lab at the university of California, San Diego. So Steve's known for cloning the T cell receptor genes. And we worked on, um, moved from the bone marrow into the thymus and worked on T cell selection and evaluated the role of protein kinase C family members in T cell selection. I, uh, I had thought that the protein kinase C lambda, that's now called IOTA, might be involved in T-cell selection. So I made a knockout mice mouse, which ended up being embryonic lethal. So took a brief foray into um, uh, embryonic development. Ended up being embryonic day, I think 6.5, which made it very uh, challenging. Um, so I finished up my postdoc and um i guess while i was a postdoc i was funded by nih as well i was a jane coffin child's memorial fellow so um i started looking for a position in industry after that um and answered an ad in the local newspaper so this was back in the day when that's where you found jobs uh for a company called gemini science and they were a wholly owned subsidiary of kieran brewery so it's it's I joined the Kieran family at that point in time. Um, I was employee 11 in a very small lab co-located with the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. And we were working on novel antibody therapeutics using our humanized um, antibody um, expressing mice, the transchromosomal mice, or then the Kieran Metarex mice. So... And it's been a really great experience for me. It's very unusual in, in the US for uh, to be at a company as long as I have, but I've been able to develop my career from a entry-level research scientist to now executive director, um, in part by having great mentors and, and, um, and um, bosses from both Japan and then with Andrew for the last seven years.
3: It's really interesting. Like we were really amazed about. Um, the ability of the company to really like keep bringing products out to the market. And so we really wanted to, you know, hear from you. um, If you can give some insights about how is that even possible? Like how, you know, how you, you can um, all the time being, bringing those products out. Um, If you can just give some review and also like talk a little bit about the recent approvals.
1: Yeah. I mean, your first question is a very, um, very good question. And, um, a little bit difficult to answer. I mean, a lot of the—if um, you think the uh, the genesis of any approved drug really starts from someone somewhere, usually a scientist having an idea in the lab that they want to target a particular molecule. So let me uh, let me let me use a, an example which is very close to to Rachel's heart, and that's a molecule called OX four zero or OX forty. And again, it's a molecule that's uh, upregulated on activated T cells. And Kiowa Kirin has an antibody that targets that molecule. And it recently went through very uh, uh, well, generated successful data in phase two studies in atopic dermatitis. Rachel can touch on the mechanism of action because she was a project leader here in San Diego on that actual antibody. But someone somewhere has to come up with an initial idea. And then a project team has to be put together. And then the project team has to go through uh, studies to to validate the target, to, to, to convince others in an organization that it's a, a good target to pursue, and then initiate a drug discovery campaign. And then after drug discovery, there's development, there's regulatory, there's, all, there's, there's pharmacokinetics that have to be performed, there's safety studies that have to be performed. So there's many facets uh, all the way from early, uh, here's an idea. to to here's an FDA application for a a drug approval on the back of clinical studies. The one thing I would finish on saying is uh, when I was at Pfizer, uh, that process I felt was much more challenging because being in a bigger organization, there were many more people to convince. Whereas when I was at my previous company, Anaptis Bio, we only had 50 people. So we made decisions on the spot and there were often only three or four people who made those types of decisions. So at Kielberg, Karen, I feel we fall somewhere in the middle of both of those extremes. Um, the challenge being that uh, we we work globally with uh, colleagues in Japan and in, with colleagues in New Jersey and in Europe and here in, in, in California. But our focus is on the research side of what I've uh, described. Rachel, do you want to touch on Ox40 and follow up on that? And maybe you should also uh, discuss a couple of recent more recent approvals because Ox40, yeah. the KHK4083 antibody isn't yet approved, right?
2: Right. Yeah. So I, I can talk about Ox40 all the time, um, all day. As, <laughs> as Andrew said, it's, it's very near to my heart. It's the project that I was uh, started on when I joined, um, joined Gemini, Kieran. Uh, so it was through uh, close collaboration or work with Mick um, Croft at the Lahey Institute for Immunology, who's the, uh, a world expert on OX40, especially in mice. Um, so we translated the work from his lab onto human, evaluating the role of ox and activating human T-cells, and then did the drug discovery in the, um, the KM mice. Um, so my team here uh, were responsible for the immunization of mice, the hybridoma discovery sequencing, and then the in vitro and in vivo validation of the neutralizing ox antibody. We then worked with our teams in Japan and they applied the patelligent technology, um, which came about through the um, merger between Kioa and Hako and, and Kirin Pharma. And so that, that um, application of the patelligent technology, which increases enhances the antibody dependent cellular cytotoxicity of the antibody um, gave it, um, additional efficacy and that we not only blocked the signaling of ox40, but then would kill the, um, activated T cells. Um, and that's been, um, shown as Andrew said it in phase two to be, um, efficacious and exciting news of partnership with Amgen to advance that to phase three and hopefully to the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah. that, that collaboration with, with academia is something that also helped to advance the two project, two of the Products that are launched in the U.S., um, Potoligio that targets CCR4 on cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Um, that all that work was done in Japan, um, and then the um, Crisvita, which is partnered with Ultragenix and targets um, FGF twenty-three. The identification of that molecule came about in the labs in Japan, and its role in hypophosphatemia was. Um, Associated with um, was done with a research lab in Japan, and a collaboration in academia. But the antibody was discovered by our antibody discovery group here in La Jolla. So mm-hmm. it's um, very exciting. You can see the global work and the the collaborations that help advance mm-hmm. the the drugs to market.
1: Yeah, great point. Great. Hey, before we leave, uh, Ox forty again, <laughs> close to my heart. Also, um, this will this will this will surprise you. Well, maybe not so much, but the Oxford molecule was first identified in Oxford by my my PhD mentor. So it's interesting that as you go through your career, certain things come back and uh, surprise you, or certain <laughs> things will uh, will jump out at you on your career that you came across. Not only individuals, but but findings, or or, or, or you know, I I knew very well the PhD candidate who cloned that molecule. Uh, And it was published back in, I think that study was published back in the early 1990s. So uh, it's a long story.
0: I I think one of the things that we kind of fear as grad students leaving academia is is really not being in that academic arena anymore at at the forefront of discovery. So I think that's a really interesting perspective in that, you know, you you always can come back to those thoughts and ideas that you had as a grad student and and things you might have been working on at the time. That excited you and and they keep coming up throughout your career. And I also think that you made some really nice points summarizing the difficulties of getting even one drug to market from both a research and clinical standpoint. Uh, And and so the fact that Kiowa Karen has been able to do it consistently um, recently and and in the past is is just amazing. Uh, I wanted to touch on one of the things that that you had mentioned, Rachel, and and either of you can speak on this, but you had mentioned a partnership with Amgen. Uh, I think more generally, our audience might be interested in understanding partnerships within large biopharma and small biotech in general. What's the role of partnerships throughout clinical development or research stage? And and how do those partnerships play out? What, What different types of partnerships can exist? Andrew is head
1: of OI. Do you want to take that one? Oh, well, I'm also, I wear, I wear two hats. I'm also the uh, the head of the Open Innovation Department here in uh, California. Um, so the Open Innovation Department is really a group that looks externally for opportunities, um, either from, from biotechs, smaller biotechs with a technology or a particular asset, that they're looking to partner, or with, you touched on academics, or with other academic groups that may have identified a novel pathway, an interesting facet of a particular cell type within immunology or oncology, or any of our other indications that we pursue. And so the Open Innovation Department looks to find those, we call them seeds. So we scout for those early opportunities or for early assets. So we don't really look for assets that are closer to the clinic or are closer to FDA approval that's the role of our business development group that's a different arm but we look for opportunities that we can further develop either in partnership or that we might bring in house and develop internally um so that's one aspect of of co-development with with external partners but the other side of that is what Rachel touched on and that is mature programs being partnered with other organizations where we can we can bring uh, an element of symbiosis. So what we would bring to the table with Ox40 and what Amgen would bring to the table with Ox40. Amgen, um, I think we're, oh, I know we're co-developing it. So there's a joint steering committee at the development stage. It's moving into phase three studies, I think this year, I hope this year. But also there's the, the, the manufacturing arm of Amgen. There's the, there's the commercial and the sales uh, force that Amgen has within immunology. So there's two extremes of really partnering, um, partnering a, an asset that's closer to approval and finding partners where we can help them develop an idea and develop patents around that, that, that discovery.
3: And continue with partnerships, like I think, so, you know, Rachel, you were talking about how, um, you know, all of the development of the antibody in principle um, was done with your team, but then you partnered to even increase and make even this antibody of 40 like better by using this Poteligen technology. And maybe we can know a little bit more about the details about about it and how it's really you can potentiate an antibody and what's what is unique advantage in, in this platform?
2: Oh, great. Sure. That's a good question. Um, so the, the kiwakirin technology for ADCC enhancing called Patelligent intelligent is, um, dependent on, so human IgG1 have, um, glycosylation modifications in the FC region. Um, and there's a fucosylation, uh, the sialic acid in, on one of the, um, glycosylation sites in the FC. And if you remove the fucose, you increase the binding of the human IgG1 to the FC gamma receptors on NK cells or macrophages. And that increases the potency 10 to 100 fold of the antibody for mediating killing. So Keoakirin generated... um, production cells, so CHO cells that lack the FUT8 enzyme that that applies that fucose. So you never get fucosylated antibodies if you produce them in those. So that's the patellagent technology. Um, There are other technologies that other companies employ or have been described that mutate the site. um, So you don't get any glycosylation at all, or that have different mutations within the FC region. They don't affect the glycosylation, but they will increase binding to the FC gamma receptor. Every company tries to find a spin, obviously, a proprietary technology um, not to, to, um, to maximize the activity of the antibodies.
3: So, in general, for antibodies, you can also like you know change, of course, the affinity or the you know the binding site and those mm-hmm. kind of things. But in this case, the fantastic part of being a platform.
1: Yeah, but the, yeah. the thing is, Gustavo, there's not not every antibody you would want to deplete your target cell population. Yeah. Right? You right. wouldn't want to go depleting neutrophils. I don't even know if you could. There's so many of them. <laughs> you don't want to go depleting uh, other other key cells in the immune system or or, or structural cells. But as Rachel pointed out. This antibody is actually manufactured in a particular cell line. So only that antibody gets afucosylated. Um, I think that technology, the Potelligent technology, I think is probably the most powerful. Uh, Cure Kirin was actually partnering that technology with a number of pharma companies through a subsidiary uh, known as Biowa. And a number of pharma companies have taken taken a license to utilize that, that technology over many years The company I was with in the UK, Celtec, which became UCB back in the day, took a a license to that. And I think once Ox40 is approved, it will be the third antibody using that technology to come to market. Um, Rachel touched on uh, Potoligio, which depletes uh, CCR4 positive cells in in, in cancer. And uh, there's a partnership with AstraZeneca and Cure Kirin, which targets the interleukin-5 receptor on eosinophils in, in patients with uh, eosinophilic asthma, which is is targeted. And OX40 will target activated T-cells, so very potent technology.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's good to think about what, what you had mentioned in that effector functions for one antibody are not appropriate, mm-hmm. possibly for another use mm-hmm. or indication. Agreed. And Kiwa, Karen, works in... Multiple different types of indications and nephrology, oncology, uh, immune allergy, um, central nervous system. Thinking about working in different types of indications but staying within the MAB engineering space, are there possible synergies? I I mean, I come from a protein purification process development background. Um, Thinking about the ways in which you manufacture these molecules is likely going to be similar given that. You know if, if you're producing a line of monoclonal antibodies um uh, they 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 look similar right the the binding fragments different but but they all have the same basic structure so so what sort of advantage do you think exists in developing uh map platforms for multiple indications
1: yeah that's a that's a really <laughs> great that's a really great great question i mean Within, in particular, the, of the four therapeutic areas that you touched on, I would say in immunology. When I when I see immunology, it's really inflammatory and autoimmune disease, um, which are driven by the immune system when it when it goes wrong, shall we say, um, or when it's not when it's not correctly uh, controlled, and also oncology. Um, whereas within nephrology, most of the work that is done within nephrology within our, our company in particular, um, there are other mechanisms that we would target uh, and other cell types within within the kidney, um, or or monitor or monitoring other aspects of me- metabolism within patients, um, which is not something I'm an expert in. And then within central nervous system, um, can't really think of too many cells you'd want to deplete within the CNS. Although the uh, the A beta. Uh, aggregated A beta has long been something that people have tried to clear within, you know, plaques of amyloid beta with antibodies, um, which has had mixed results. You've 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 probably read the news of Biogen and its struggles with its uh, Aduhelm uh, antibody that targets A beta. But within oncology and immunology, there are many different ways that you can engineer the antibody. I mean, you've opened up discussion, I guess, on bispecific technologies, targeting two molecules at the same time, or or biparatopic, as we call them, targeting one molecule, but at two different sites on the same molecule. And those are the things that we're actively engaged I want to touch on that. Your your group is working now on bispecific technologies.
2: Yeah, I was going to touch on that as well, Andrew, that the um, specific or multi-specific molecules to do specific targeting. So, um, you know, within autoimmune immunology, it's to target the more the pathogenic cells or, um, specific cells in, in potentially different tissues. Um, within cancer, there's, uh, work going on for T cell engagers and, and improving the specificity of the targeting. So targeting the, the tumor cells and trying to keep the host immune cells or host um, uh, stromal cells intact. I think one thing we haven't touched on but is of high interest are smaller antibodies, nanobodies, or something maybe that could be easier to get into the central nervous system. So you know, there's lots of um, antibody engineering and, and um, technologies that could be explored and are, and are being explored by Kiran as well as other companies.
3: Yeah, it's it's impressive how antibodies has a lot to give still, right? Um, and so my question related that you started talking about tissues in general, and I saw that um, there is a part also like uh, the company talking about tissue homing antibodies, and
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know that's something that I honestly I didn't think about much at all. And like, something that you always learn about, you know, antigen, you know, interaction with antibody blocking or that. But yeah, I mean, you are giving an antibody that goes to the body. Right. And mm. what is, what is it about? Like what, what are the things we need to consider or what are the new things that maybe we can explode from different, you know, like ways that antibodies behave um, in tissues. And yeah. I think
2: this is where the multi-specifics come in and in one um, or then new formulations that, like, right. The Holy grail would be, could you take an antibody orally or, or, or inhaled something that right now it has to be, IV or sub-Q are the main routes. Um, but so if we could access different, um, different uh, tissues or different spaces um, yeah. uh, through the technology or antibody engineering, making them smaller, putting some sort of, uh, making it bispecific where it would only target the lung, um, I think that that's, that's something that would greatly enhance our ability to treat patients. And can we
1: mimic like the affinity maturation that happens in vivo? Yeah, that's already been done by a number of companies. The company I spent uh, three years at, prior to joining KewaCare, and I, I recommend that you guys look up their website, Anaptis Bio. Um, they use a somatic hypermutation platform. They've identified hotspots in, in CDRs and in frameworks that are mutated as an antibody matures and becomes more optimal in terms of its affinity. And a number of other companies are also doing that um, by just uh, recognizing which parts of the antibody are more frequently mutated and introducing mutations at those hotspots and looking for improvements in uh, affinity. Adimab, um, I believe, also have that type of platform and a lot of their work has been generating antibodies in a yeast phage expression system, but introducing hotspot mutations to increase uh, the affinity.
2: And now there's even artificial intelligence and machine Mm -hmm. learning taken from the, you know, the the human genome as well as all of the antibodies that are in the clinic and trying to predict uh, amino acids that can be changed for Mm -hmm. affinity.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I I think my perspective is uh, of that of infectious disease, and often in infectious disease, like we've seen with SARS-CoV-2, um, you you might go out and identify uh, someone who has plasma that neutralizes the virus very well, uh, and and you could uh, isolate that individual monoclonal antibody and and manufacture it um, synthetically uh, for something like uh, some sort of cell surface marker, say, Ox40. Uh, that doesn't uh, have intrinsic antibodies targeting that cell surface receptor, um, what, what are the most common ways that people actually screen for uh, antibodies that that bind well to something that's a, a cell surface receptor um, on our own cells, on, on host cells?
1: Hmm. That's something we do. On a daily basis, Rachel, you lead that team. So yeah. why don't you take that question? That's our bread and butter, Joe. Yeah. That's what we do. Um, because as you point out, before Rachel takes that on, the immune system is not there to attack our own tissues, right? I mean, we we, we manipulate, if you like, antibodies as therapeutic drugs. But that's not why uh, antibody genes developed over millions of years. They developed to protect us. So going back to infectious disease, But if you identify a target on a particular cell, whether it's a mast cell, a basophil, a T cell, a monocyte, then to to set up a discovery program and identify the antibody you want, you're then going after an antibody that binds a self-protein that you think will switch off or modify the immune response. And that's what Rachel and her team do every day, including today, I would assume. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think there's a screening and cloning picking right now. Um, yes. So there, there's two aspects of that, right? So the first is the immunization campaign, and and if your antigen or your 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 target is very well conserved between human and mice, you probably need to manipulate the mice in some way, or or your immunization scheme would have ways to break tolerance so that the mice will respond to your immunogen, um, and if it's highly and divergent from mouse, they're more likely to get antibodies. doesn't mean you'll get an antibody to the epitope you want or with the function you want. So, um, so the screening campaigns involve, um, usually we start with binding to the antigen either on a transfectant cell or a endogenously expressed cell and then count if an screen against potential um, molecules that might be close similarity or on the transfectant will if it's expressed on transfectant, we'll make sure it doesn't cross-react with um, the parental cell. Um, we Then uh, we'll incorporate a functional screen as soon as we can, if we're looking for a blocking antibody or an agonist antibody, so to make sure we're getting the um, the binding um, that we'd like. Another important characteristic is cross-reactivities to non-human primates, so synomologous macaque or rhesus macaque. Uh, As of right now in drug development for safety, you have to go into uh, a non-human primate before you go into humans. right? um, And so the antibodies should be cross-reactive and have a very close affinity so that you can um, hopefully predict um, any safety flags. But yeah, there's probably people running flow cytometry right now um, looking for binding of our antibodies. It's a soluble molecule. You're asking about cell surface, but we also target cytokines or, um, extracellular molecules. So most likely we would use an ELISA based assay for that.
0: So it's a very nice description of, of the overall process. I'm I'm wondering what are some of the challenges in, in that process? And once you've identified a target that you think would be a good fit for targeting by a monoclonal antibody, um, what are really the pain points and and what do you think, uh, where, where do you think we'll see innovation in the space in the future?
2: So I think it's happening now as far as like the single B cell um, cloning, even fr- from immunized animals or from people, if it's an infectious disease, um, the, the pain points are that the, I think we like to say the low hanging fruit and targets is gone, right? So the, the easier, Molecules to target have, have mostly all been, been captured. So we're looking at multi-pass membrane proteins, GPCR, ion channels, um, Mm. complex, other complex molecules on the surface, or, or, or if it's extracellular, they may be forming multimers or something. So targeting those and getting functional antibodies to those molecules is, is, is difficult so you have to explore multiple types of immunogens, immunization campaigns, different um, different species, different approaches. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of the pain points is is getting the antibody that you want. And so increasing the number of clones that you can screen is important.
1: Becoming more challenging, technology. right? Yeah. to think of a novel targeting idea. Yeah, I mean it's a very you know it's a very it's a very competitive industry. It always has been but when i started out in uh, working at cell tech, i mean we were targeting back then we were targeting interleukin 13 interleukin 17 we we brought a tnf antibody to the market you know those those targets have all gone it's it's now as rachel said trying to look at more challenging complex cell surface molecules or trying to trying to target perhaps a t cell or a b cell but only at particular stages in in the pathology or As you guys touched on earlier, only in a a certain tissue. There was a company in Boston called Pandion. Um, They were acquired by Merck recently, and they were targeting immune cells only in certain tissues. So they would have a bi specific approach. One arm of the antibody would bind to a a tissue specific molecule, and the other arm would bind to the immune cells in that tissue. Um, And interestingly, they were acquired by Merck for the potential that had prior to any clinical data (laughs) so uh Merck I guess we're excited by the potential and uh one of my best friends was the um head of protein sciences that a guy called Nathan Higginson Scott I worked with him at Pfizer so again you know stay in touch with people throughout your career because uh They'll be on their way up, maybe while you're on your way down, I don't know. <laughs> As you get older, that is. I'm talking I'm talking personally.
0: <laughs> we definitely uh, preach the power of a network here on the podcast. And I, I think we'll definitely seek out advice in a few minutes. I, I had one more question uh, about this sort of Mab discovery space and, and some of the challenges. What role does automation play in this process? It seems like Uh, the the process is very stepwise and you know exactly what each step should accomplish along the way. So I I think the advent of uh, you had mentioned artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, as well as advanced robotics might actually benefit this MAP discovery platform process. Do you use automation in your process and and how does that, that impact MAP discovery?
2: Yeah. So we, we have, A low level of automation, I would say. So um, we have that. I said picking colonies. So we have it's called the clone picks, um, and it can the hybridomas are plated in a semi solid media that contains a fluorescent anti human IgG antibody. And the clone picks can detect the green colonies and picks them and puts them into plates to expand. Um, And then on the screening for ELISA or flow cytometry, we've got um, high throughput flow cytometers um, or plate readers um, and automated washing, things like that. Um, The process has been fully automated at other companies. I was just at a conference in Sanofi presented in Germany. They've got fully automated from isolation of the, the B cells from the spleen through to isolation of isolation of the rna at the end to identify the antibody sequencing and obviously the sequencing is automated so there are different companies have different levels of automation um, it definitely allows you to screen more clones which when you're looking at these more difficult targets more difficult functions um, or that um, will get you there potentially faster
1: mm. but i always like the idea of having a skilled operator looking at the data as it comes out. You know, oh, yeah. robotics and mm-hmm. high throughput robotics are great, but having someone trained in identifying an antibody sequence or the profile of a, an inhibitor and an assay is, uh, in my view, second to none. But we'll see where artificial intelligence goes in the years to come in that capacity.
0: Well, at the end <laughs> of the day, for the thousands and thousands of leads that you have in, in the early steps of the process – you're only taking one of those into clinical development, presumably. Mm -hmm. So so it's a good point that uh, at the end of the day, you do need a lot of verification and and validation of that that one clinical target.
3: Yeah. And I think that going to that comment that you said about, you know, yeah, we have all of this technology and automated stuff, but who is listening to the podcast um are all PhD students as well, that they really, you know, are trying to understand what, what it takes and what what they need really from, from the training that they do every day, um, you know, to go and, and even like apply for a job or or what they can offer and how they can add value as well. And so what should like
1: new PhD grads from, from our school or from different ones uh look out for? Yeah, I would would suggest strongly that you guys are, you guys have chosen the correct field to study. Immunology Mm -hmm. is, uh, it's very complex. It's getting, it's getting more and more complex. You know, when I was studying immunology, there were T cells, B cells, and neutrophils and monocytes. (laughs) Now there's ILC1, ILC2, ILC3, and ILC17, Tregs. We call them suppressor cells. But um, knowing the immune system is really setting you up to be able to work in a variety of fields, either with, within academia or in industry. Um just finally for me, when I decided to study immunology, most of my, my classmates were deciding to study classical biochemistry or pharmacology. And I took the leap into immunology because I just found it fascinating how MHC class one and class two restriction happened and how. I know this sounds dumb, but how intelligent the immune system <laughs> seemed to be, um, in, in in so far as in healthy individuals ignoring our own tissues and at, attacking invading pathogens, and all of the growth factors and cytokines that orchestrate that response. So I, I feel that you guys and your your podcast listeners and your fellow students in immunology are in a great starting position, and uh, as Rachel will testify, trying to find in the current job market trying to find qualified immunologists is very competitive right now a lot of companies in the immuno-oncology space in the uh, the classic autoimmune inflammatory disease space in particular are looking for qualified immunologists at, at all levels um so that's a great first step you guys have taken
2: yeah and i just uh, i think immunology touches everything right so immuno-oncology the neuroimmunology the 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 Protecting the body is a is what goes wrong in a lot of diseases, and so the manipulation of the immune system, I think, is a cornerstone. Um, once again, maybe because of my training, but um, I think to touch on the skills you learn in graduate school that that translate to um, to industry, and and maybe some of the things you don't learn in graduate school that would be helpful in industry, or. First one, the ones you learn is is you learn how to think, right? You learn how to solve a problem, um, and that's that's translatable definitely into industry. I mean, every day I'm challenged by something new, either whether it's at the not under um, trying to interpret data that maybe the experiment isn't the outcome isn't what we expected, and so what that means for the project, what that troubleshooting to see if it was a technical issue or if it's true biology, and so that. You learn that during the course of your your dissertation research, right? So that's directly translatable. The uh, the aspects that um, you two definitely have by running this podcast is communication and communication across teams. So how to share your ideas, how to listen to other ideas and incorporate that advice um, and building a team and working on a team. Um, as opposed to the lone scientist in the lab, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's what's very different, um, I think, and, and would bode well for you and your listeners in and, and moving into industry.
1: Can't <laughs> can't speak for Rachel, but some of the best years of my life were the the, the, the years I spent at, at Oxford in the lab working for my PhD and getting to know postdocs and students from all over the world and having a lot of successes and failures along the way. And uh, yeah. Great times. I look back with—I uh, don't want to get too emotional—but I look back with great fondness of the time as a grad student in Oxford.
3: You—you you said also like like working with international students, right? And and now in a company, I mean, you are in a company where you have you know like people from different countries, and you all working together to improve the the mm-hmm. therapies that you want to bring, right? And so at the end, you're still as well. You need to learn how to work with with people from different cultures as well. Right. Um and even though we still speak the same language as the science, but still yeah. so that's very valuable.
1: I think that international flavor is a great thing though, right? You you not only learn as you go through your career. I'm still learning at the stage I am at my career, but also just having that proximity to people who've got different backgrounds, different cultures. I think I think it's a fantastic thing. Um yeah.
3: So Rachel. Uh, and Andrew we really um, appreciate your time today it was really nice to talk to you and we also value your your final and personal experiences for our PhD and so thank you so much for for being in the podcast today
1: thank you both Uh, continue to work hard and uh, remember to have fun along the way okay
2: thank you both very much enjoyed speaking with you and and hope your podcast listeners uh, was helpful for them good luck with your careers
1: yeah good luck guys
0: Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varelli.
3: I'm Gustavo Carrizo.
0: Thank you for listening.